0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.
1: Welcome, everyone. I'm Andy Hohen here from RAND. I'm just delighted to see how many people have turned out for this event tonight, and I think we're all excited to hear from our panel. And so I'll just make some brief introductions of our of our panel members. First, uh, Krishna Kumar, uh, a dear friend, but I think a great leader of our Labor and Population Program. Um, not only does he do that, but he's very active at the Party RAND Graduate School um, and is he leads the Roosevelt Program on Asian Development at Party Rand, uh, very active in the program and the school, very active in terms of uh, his overall uh, research um, as well. Uh, our second panelist, uh, Kathleen Mullen, is uh, director of the Rand Center for Disability Research and she's the Associate Director of our Economic, Sociology, and Statistics Department at RAND. And so like many of us in the organization, she wears multiple hats. We're just delighted to have her. Third on our panel, uh, Jim Hosek, Senior Economist and Editor of the RAND Journal of Economics. Jim's had any number of roles at RAND here over his career and uh, just been a a wonderful contributor, and we're, we're delighted to have him. And the fourth member of our panel, Carter Price, is a mathematician and is here from the Rand Washington office, also my home. So we're uh, both Carter and I are delighted to be uh, visiting uh, here today and to be part of this event this evening. Now, I'd like to turn the discussion over to our esteemed moderator Garrett Reem, who is a journalist here in Los Angeles for the Los Angeles Business Journal. I know Garrett, as uh, like the rest of us, is excited to hear from our panelists. And Garrett, I'll turn this over to you, and I'll see. I'll be back to uh, finish things up at the end of the evening as we're as we're wrapping things up. Garrett,
0: thank you. Um, yeah, I think we should start with Kathleen. Your team just released the American Working Conditions Survey. But what was so significant about this survey?
2: So yeah, it's a, so we just released our our first report and uh, just describing the survey. So I, I think you know what's most significant about the report is it's the you know probably the most comprehensive modern survey of working conditions in the United States. Unlike it's like statistics that you can pull up from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they'll tell you about. You know, health insurance and fringe benefits and things like that, we ask a variety of questions about flexibility at work, you know, physical demands, exposure to risks, pace of work, autonomy, whether or not you have experienced any kind of hostility or abuse, you know, as part of your working environment. And one really unique feature is, uh, so we, we fielded this survey on uh, the RAND American Life Panel, which is an internet panel that RAND established, I think, 10 years ago. And we have been following the same group of about 3,000 people over time. And so not only are we able to, you know, link up some of our, our, you know, survey questions on working conditions with other surveys that other people have done, we'll be able to follow these people over time and so dig into some of these, you know, questions that have sort of come up uh, in our current report. So I think it's pretty exciting, um, you know, looking forward to, to, you know, seeing it's kind of the first step in a big research agenda around this topic.
0: Uh, can you give us a little bit more? What are the, what are the highlights from this survey?
2: yeah so it 's a it 's a really comprehensive <laughs> report you know i think it 's something like seventy or eighty pages long, so there 's a lot of stuff you know in there. you know some of the things that a lot of people have found interesting you know have been looking at you know we do cuts by age education, and uh, gender. And so, you know, we can look at sort of what's different between people with college educations and, and, you know, those without. So, you know, some interesting findings are, you know, we find that people with college educations tend to have work spilling over into their personal lives a lot. They're working in their free time, you know, uh, at high levels. Uh, People without college educations tend to, to, um, you know, one of the kind of downsides that we've discovered is they tend to have less control over their schedules um, and sometimes are subject to, like, a, like an unexpected uh, change in their schedule that they don't have any control over. I, I talked about how we asked people about, you know, some of the, the you know, hostile work behaviors that, or behaviors that they experience in their working lives. So one, you know, really surprising finding for us is we found that one out of five American workers reports, you know, some, something like that. So, you know, whether it's, like, uh, you know, bullying, harassment, um, you know, some sort of, like, verbal abuse even violence in the workplace. These, we thought, were pretty high levels, and they actually tend to be focused among younger men without college degrees. Uh, so for that group, the, the level was 35%. So that seemed extremely alarming. Uh, and so we're, we're really interested in learning what's going on there and, you know, what are some of the implications of that and, and what are some ways to prevent that. You know, there there were some da- uh, upsides. Uh, you know, people have a lot of autonomy in their jobs. They learn a lot in their jobs. And, um and I think four out of five people found um, some source of meaning in their jobs beyond just the paycheck. So they felt like they were making a difference, you know, in the type of work that they did, or they found it personally, you know, challenging. And so uh, there's a lot more than just, you know, the the you know pay that you get that the people find uh, fulfilling about their jobs.
0: And Krishna, what do the numbers tell us about the state of the American worker?
3: Thanks, Garrett. I'd like to start out by saying what a pleasure and honor it is for me to be directing uh, the RAND Labor and Population uh, Unit in its 50th year. I guess I'm very lucky that way. Year after year, amazing researchers such as the ones you see here have been contributing very high-impact policy research and analysis, thereby fulfilling uh, the mission of this unique organization uh, that is RAND. Uh, But just to throw out some numbers at you about the US labor market, let's start with the positives, which is always a good place to start. Despite the lower-than-expected jobs created last month, which was, like, I think, 156,000 over a 12-month period, the U.S. economy has created over 2 million jobs, which many people consider uh, is good. And just to put it in perspective, at the height of the Great Recession in 2009, we lost, like, 5 million jobs. So we are clearly, uh, you know, climbing uh, out of that. Unemployment rate is at historic lows, 43 4.4%. And even though we are not, you know hitting it out of the ballpark with 3 and 4% growth rate, we've been chugging along at 2% growth rate, which is pretty good. You know, it's one of the longest expansions uh, that we have seen. On the challenges front, um, wage growth is not as high as it used to be. So up to the year 2000, uh, the average annual wage growth was something like 5%. And after that, up to the Great Recession, it was 4%. And now it is barely touching 3%. In fact, last year it was 2.5%. And as uh, Carter would later uh, tell you about inequality, it has clear implications for inequality. So that's one challenge we have to deal with. The other is that labor force participation rate, which is basically the uh, percentage of uh, adults uh, who can work and are economically active, uh, has not reached uh, the pre-Great Recession levels. It used to be 66 percent. It's now 63 percent. And... Part of it is because people are retiring from the labor force. But part of it, and the more worrisome trend, is people are just dropping out of the labor force because they're getting discouraged. They're looking for jobs. They're not finding uh, their skills are not suitable for this uh, modern, globalized, uh, highly technological uh, environment, and they're dropping out. And then finally, and this is a very uh, interesting statistic, and in fact this is hot off the press, it was released today, there are 6.2 million job openings currently in the U.S., and if you think about the number of unemployed people, it's around 7 million. So technically speaking, we should be able to you know, match all of them up and have like, you know, pretty much everybody employed. But because of the skill mismatch between what the employers want and what the employees have, people not wanting to move, and many other factors, you still have this mismatch of 7 million unemployed but 6.2 million openings. So that, did I give you enough numbers? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just making sure. You, you did well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> looking back a dec- decade, Rand published uh, a report on uh, the 21st century workplace about 10 years ago. Uh, now, 10 years on, what uh, what became of those predictions?
3: That's, that's a great question. That is one of the examples of this high-impact work. I mentioned it was a report published in 2004 where the authors looked at the writing on the wall and made some bold predictions. And uh, so last year, as part of our American Worker blog series, we said, "Oh, you know, let's see how well we did, um, and and you know assess you know our predictions." So some of the predictions made was there's going to be a huge demographic change. Workers are going to become uh, older. There are going to be more women and minorities in the labor force. Technological change and globalization is going to continue. And by and large, except for like some subtleties and nuances, all these predictions have uh, you know, been amplified and have occurred over time. So just to look at demography, I mean, here is an interesting fact. The fastest growing uh, labor force uh, demography is 65 plus uh, people. In 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 the labor force, the average labor force is forecast to grow between 2014 and 2024 at 0.5 percent a year. But for this particular age group, the growth rate is 3 percent a year. So clearly, the prediction that you know workers are becoming uh, older have uh, come into uh, you know realization. And and Kathleen and her team have looked at the implications of this uh, going forward. Trade, of course, has. You know, displaced jobs, uh, you know, especially in manufacturing and especially those who do not have college degrees. Just to give you an idea, we used to have 20 million people in the manufacturing labor force at its peak in the 70s, and now we are barely, you know, over 12 million. So we have lost jobs. With uh, automation and you know computerization in particular, which is the uh, technological change we were most concerned with in the last few decades, uh, it's a little bit interesting. You know, at the lower end and at the higher end, there's not much effect. But there's been a hollowing out of the middle where, you know, in manufacturing, in services, people who are doing routine jobs are finding that their jobs are being displaced. So, for example, people uh, would have heard about the loss of retail jobs, you know, uh, especially in 2017. Uh, It's one of the sectors that's really hurt, and we're seeing that effect. And finally, there's also a complicated interaction between globalization and technological change. So we predicted that the nature of work is going to become uh, a little bit loose and flexible, um, and it's going to be decentralized. And uh, in fact, in this American Life panel, we did a survey for Princeton University, and they found that uh, people in flexible, contractual kind of a labor market arrangement went up from 10% of the labor force to 16% in a matter of of, of a, a decade. And then finally, the thing we also predicted was a growth in wage dispersion, which is basically the the highest earning people and the lowest earning people. The gap is going to increase. And again, Carter is likely to fill in some of the details. That's come to uh, be a fact as well.
0: And Jim, we were just mentioning citing outsourcing and other pressures, trade pressures on workers. There's also other pressures in sourcing, bringing workers into this country. How much Uh, influence have foreign workers have uh, on the STEM market, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, et cetera?
4: Uh, Actually, that's an interesting question, too. And let me touch back on one of the facts that uh, Krishna mentioned about the decrease in manufacturing as a share in the U.S. economy. It's gone down considerably and steadily for the past 20 years. What's interesting, in part, is that the same trend has occurred in Europe and in Asia, Manufacturing has simply become much more productive and the percentage of the economy going to manufacturing has fallen. The only country recently that's an exception to that is China. And that is a lot of outsourcing of, of manual manufacturing and to some extent automation. So why is this interesting? It's, it draws attention to the fact that global global globalization of economics, cross-ownerships, um, Trade, decreased transportation costs have a general effect. And one of the factors that is affecting economies worldwide is investment in science and technology. And so if we think about that and then think about what the United States is doing, I can touch back on a study that we were asked to do, again, some years ago, 2008, having to do with the competitiveness of the U.S. science and technology enterprise compared to other countries... In our assessment at that time, I've reviewed the findings recently, and generally everything that was in trend and found at that time has tended to continue. One of the worries back then, and I will get to <laughs> your question, one of the worries back then was that the U.S. was simply losing traction, that we weren't investing enough in science and technology, that other countries, Korea, China, Brazil, India, Indonesia, were outpacing us and soon would outrun us economically. Um, what we found out, actually, was that the U.S. Uh, investment in science and technology, uh, the quality of work we do, the quality of our institutions, remained high. And I've checked, and it's still quite high. The big change in, in, the, in the world economy in general has been the rise of China and, secondarily, the rise of India and Korea, um, less so Brazil, but China is the one whose economy is nearly our size now, and that is spending nearly the same fraction of their the fraction of their economy as uh, the European countries are are spending. It's still below the percentage we're spending. So, with that in mind, the science and engineering workforce in the United States can be defined in a number of different ways. Uh, a fairly narrow definition consists of workers who have at least a bachelor's degree and work in what, they would, uh, what is recognized by the Bureau of Labor, uh, of Commerce, I think, Department of Commerce, as a science and engineering job. So that's 5.4 million people. Of that 5.4 million, 25% and rising are foreign-born workers. Okay? Now, what about the production of those workers? Well, some of them come to the United States already educated, but the United States is responsible for educating quite a few at our universities. So currently, there are 500,000, half a million graduate students in the United States. And of those graduate students, 40% are foreign-born. They're basically here studying. We produced, last, in 2015, 34,000 doctorates. And of those doctorates, 40% were on a student visa. And so the question is, what happens to this human capital, these very smart individuals who have had the benefit of education at some of the world's, a large number of the world's leading institutions? Um, Longitudinal evidence tracking them indicates that about 68 to 69% remain in the United States for five years, and about 65% are here for at least 10 years. So the United States is holding on to about two-thirds of them, which is good in a way. And this is done through something called the H-1B visa program. That program provides individuals with a three-year term of employment here, provided they get the H-1 visa approved, followed by another possible three years. And the United States has, since I think, I don't know, the late 90s, had a cap of 65,000 on H1B visas. But that cap applies only to basically for-profit private enterprise. Nonprofits and universities are exempt from the cap. So, on average about 110,000 individuals plus or minus 25,000 have been receiving a new H1B visa each year. So, the, that inflow of foreign graduate students and their retention here has been a major factor in the economy. But that, I, I, I won't go on much longer, but that that by itself is a very controversial fact because there is one faction who believes that H-1B visas and the presence of these foreign graduates has had a depressing effect on the employment opportunities and wages of Native Graduate students, or graduate graduates, doctoral graduates actually, in science and engineering. And the other faction argues, uh, after, for example, most recently reviewing 29 studies, a meta analysis of the impact on wages, the net impact on wages has been zero. Not, you know, it's very small variance across the studies, but the average has been zero. And um, in addition to that, they say that. The foreign graduates have helped expand the market, create uh, opportunities for improving the productivity at firms, added to the innovativeness of the firms, and also, as many of you who follow Silicon Valley can attest, have led to the formation of many new companies. Uh, President Trump has asked the federal departments to propose recommendations to reform the H-1B visa program. And so stay tuned. It will remain to be seen what comes from that.
0: And we want to make sure we get to Carter on the end. Um, Speaking of uh, STEM workers, highly skilled workers, typically workers who are often getting uh, some of the highest pays in our economy, um, what has the emphasis of high skill uh, in economic gains and in an economy had on inequality?
5: Certainly there are a, uh, a host of one of the trends of the last forty years has been rising economic inequality in the United States and in most of the developed world, uh, and one of the factors that that is uh, that that's sort of linked to that is the increased return to skills. So if you have a, an education, uh, you're you're doing better than uh, you know your parents having that same level of education. Just the returns to education have grown. Over time, as our economy is, has changed, and and that uh, that has led to an increase in, in an, That is one of the factors that has led to an increase in inequality. That's not the sole factor, uh, but that is one of the things that has led to a rise in inequality. And uh, what's sort of interesting about that is that at the same time, uh, as, uh, as as Jim and Krishna were were mentioning, you know, when you compare us to China and, and the developed world. Inside the developed world in, in the West, and uh, inequality has been increasing steadily. But if you look globally, global inequality has declined substantially because countries like China and India have grown uh, rapidly too. And so while within the West, the very top are doing very well relative to sort of the lower income people in the United States and, and in Europe. Uh, the gap between someone in the West and someone in sort of a uh, lesser developed country is shrinked. And so uh, that's sort of the, the flip side to, to rising inequality, is that it's rising within countries, but it's declining globally. And that's something that frequently gets overlooked. And so there are, when people are talking about rising inequality and when people are talking about any um, these sort of trends in the economy, it's very important to make sure that you're, sort of defining where you're looking. So if you're just looking in the United States, uh, inequality's been rising substantially in the last 40 years. It's particularly high in large cities, L.A., New York, D.C. It's particularly high on the coasts. It's also particularly high in the south. Uh, Inequality is still high uh, in the Midwest, but it's lower in the Midwest. It's lower in the Great Plains states. It's lower in the Mountain West. And... uh, that's sort of an active area of study to sort of understand why why this is you know what's causing these variations, and so you can blame um, higher returns to education you can blame globalization, but it's very complex, and these things interact and so that's where uh, thoughtful analysis is is very useful
0: um, regarding u s workforce and inequality inequality is often addressed. On moral grounds. Uh, people have moral issues with inequality, uh, but there are economic impacts, uh, there are social impacts, health impacts. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about uh, some of those impacts? Sure.
5: So uh, there is sort of a growing body of evidence, and there's certainly evidence indicating that higher economic inequality uh, is adversely related to economic mobility. So in uh, societies that have a high level of economic inequality, your ability to, uh, if you start off, if your parents are low income, your ability to sort of live the American dream or or to sort of have upward mobility is decreased. And so there's there's evidence uh, within the United States of this. There's evidence internationally of this. And we actually, uh, there was a Uh, came out with a study last year uh, looking at this and sort of exploring some of these relationships that was internally uh, funded. Uh, In addition to that, there also sort of depends on the shape of inequality, sort of what does the inequality look like. So if you're talking about a high high poverty area, that's one way that you can have high economic inequality. And there are certain harms associated with, with having high poverty, Uh, It's detrimental to health. So if if you're a low-income person and that adversely impacts your health, it adversely impacts your children's health. Uh, It also is associated with higher crime. It's associated with lower social stability. And it has uh, very detrimental effects. You can also think about the middle class. And so you can have high economic inequality because you have a small middle class, or a shrinking middle class, and uh, a small and shrinking middle class there's some indication that that might be adversely related to economic growth, so if your middle class class is shrinking, your economy might not be doing as well or might not be growing as quickly, and exactly you know is the chicken or the egg, which one's causing what's unclear uh and then there's there's uh the concentration of wealth and so you can have high economic inequality if the people at the top uh, make sort of a, a take home a large share of the economy and so uh, that's sort of another way that you can have high economic inequality and one of the adverse uh, effects there is that that can lead to uh, negative political outcomes where in democracies you may be less representative and so high economic inequality that's caused by wealth concentration can have adverse uh, political impacts.
0: Gotcha. I want to throw one back to Krishna. Um, What are some of the emerging labor market trends that you're you're
3: watching? That's a great question. You know, we ask ourselves, you know, what we should be focusing on. I'll just mention a couple. One is, as I mentioned, there's an increase in the flexible labor market arrangements. On the one hand, it uh, gives you more flexibility, allows, you know, People have shown that women enter the labor market more easily when you can do these jobs um, with some level of flexibility. But the flip side is, uh, do these workers get benefits? Do they get training, right? How do we balance the flexibility with the loss that comes from it? That's one thing we are looking at, and the other is the effect of automation on jobs. AI is the big buzzword. Everybody is asking what is it going to uh, do to jobs. Uh, Personally, I think that the truth is somewhere in between, oh, we're all going to become obsolete, all we can do is binge watch Netflix uh, uh, all day, versus, oh, everything is going to be hunky-dory because new jobs are going to be created. So what role can policy... Play uh, in in making sure that uh, you know these people get the displaced people get integrated into the economy. That's the other topic we are looking at. Okay,
0: uh, and speaking of the the labor force, Jim, we have an aging population, and uh, what does that mean for our economy?
4: Too much Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take an opportunity then with that question to talk a little about, bit about. A, a technical capability developed within RAND that's pertinent to how RAND can help on that. So the topic here is that as people age, of course, eventually many of them will retire, maybe unretire, and then re-retire. But gradually they will leave the labor force, and at that point in time, it's very important for them to have in- income security. Uh, the foundation of income security, of course, is Social Security now, but for many individuals, they have a a a private uh, insurance asset. Um, Especially in the economy these days, starting from the 1980s, an increasing fraction of employers have reverted from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans. So workers under defined contribution plans essentially are in a pay-as-you-go system. They own their assets, they have the responsibility of managing them, and they are not in danger of having an underfunded pension fund. But there are many workers, especially those in public organizations, that are under defined benefit plans. In the United States today, 71% is the funding ratio of public plans. That is to say, for every dollar of liability, there are 71 cents of assets. Uh, this, um, this ranges from fully funded funds like New York State and the District of Columbia to funds that are funded below 35%, which would include New Jersey, Kentucky, and Illinois. So again, the average is 71%. Now, the recent increase in stocks and bonds is going to raise that percentage somewhat, but there's no easy way out of the underfundedness. It's simply going to take more contributions going into the future. Now, I want you to have that in your mind as background. They're simply, you know, they're just... One needs to call for greater political economic prudence in ensuring these things are funded. So with that in mind, there is a question of what can be done in the near term and the long term, and that brings to the modeling capability that's been developed here at RAND. The modeling capability is relevant to thinking about compensation in a large organization where individuals can expect to spend a major portion of their time, such as working for the government, Okay, a lot of times individuals have a very long span. This would be teachers too. And here, when we think in our modeling about compensation, we think about compensation as a tool to promote the, the labor shape and quantity that the organization wants. So we think about something called a retention profile. Workers enter, some of them enter at the beginning of careers, some of them come in laterally, and you want to keep them for some period of time but not forever. So the, this, with this in mind, you can see that compensation in, involves um, decisions, worker decisions, that affect their retention throughout their work life. The modeling capability that was developed here began in the 1950s with the invention of something called dynamic stochastic programming. It was basically a discrete version of work that had been done in the 1800s by physicists who were doing you know, Hamiltonians. But Richard Bellman invented discrete, you know, dynamic, dynamic stochastic programming. Nothing could be done with it at first; it was too complicated. But by the 1980s, computing power had developed to the point where it was possible not only to specify dynamic programs but to estimate them. RAND invested heavily in a project that succeeded in doing this, and then later on, starting with my colleagues, uh, starting about 15 years ago we expanded that capability. The capability allows one to look at the extent to which changes in a compensation structure can change the retention and re- and retirement profile of workers in ways that are satisfactory to the individual and the organization and can reduce or control the retirement liability. And so we've recently applied that to Chicago public school teachers, and we've worked with the Chicago Public uh, Uh, school teacher Chicago education system and before that applied it in the context of the US military and that work led to the first reform of the military retirement system since nineteen forty-eight and we want to throw some questions to the audience right now
1: hi thank you so much for a very very enlightening uh, conversation tonight you know uh, I've heard from time to time the idea that everybody should have a guaranteed income Because not everybody's going to be able to work, and I'd like to hear maybe some of the data or quantifications that you've come up with with that idea.
4: I'll start, because I have the least to say. (laughs) (laughs) And that is that uh, that really is going to be an issue that will confront this economy as time goes on, because there will be a question about jobs that are simply outmoded because of technological advances through computing, artificial intelligence, and so forth. Trying to figure out how to, how to implement an, a, an income floor that guards against what's known as moral hazard is a, a, a very serious deep question. What um, do you mean by moral hazard? Moral hazard would be, it's, that's just simply a, a, a way of saying that individuals respond to the incentives they face. The term moral hazard first came up in the context of health insurance, where it was observed that people who had relatively low copays had an incentive to increase the amount of health care they took, a moral hazard. Well, we also call it a response to incentives. But the, but um, um, all I, I can simply agree. I don't really have a solution to offer you. I, and I, in the interest, I'll be happy to talk later. But in the interest of time, I'll turn it over to Carter. No,
5: I'll just say that that's. Uh, I think the, the policy is frequently referred to as a universal basic income. It says you know. Uh, Everyone should have a, a, a livable income. That's you know you can cover your basics expenses with. And uh, this is something that people are floating around as, as sort of a something that we may need in the future when automation has taken you know most like uh, jobs that that a lot of people have. And uh, this is something that actually we're currently working on some analysis. We're building a model that we will be able to use to assess policies like that. And so uh, Krishna can talk to the sum. but we're uh, using internal funds have been developing a a model of the labor market uh, we're referring to as mobile uh, that we can use to assess the implications for uh, labor market policy changes like the universal basic income, like minimum wages, uh, like certain changes in the tax policies so that we can assess if you were to implement a policy like that, what would be the impact on labor supply, what would be the impact on economic growth, what would be the impact on sort of a host of other outcomes, economic inequality. Um, And so that's an active area of research, and that's something that I I sadly can't answer your question now, but hopefully in a couple years we'll, we'll be able to.
1: Have you guys ever looked at the impact of what Alzheimer's disease is actually doing to the workforce, where people like myself have to become caretakers and take up God knows how many years off Mm -hmm. of work and become a flexible worker, but the impact on what that's going to do, because the the, the statistics are showing that Medicare will be bankrupt by 2025 if we don't come up with a meaningful solution to treat Alzheimer's disease, because I live it every day, every moment. That's why I was late getting here. Thank you. (laughs) I'm, I'm, you know,
3: Kathleen might have uh, stuff to add on this, but this is one of our proudest line of work, so I have to boast a little bit about it. So a couple of years back, uh, one of our researchers, Michael Hurd, and his team—in fact, Kathleen worked uh, on that on that team. Uh, came up with uh, what is the cost of dementia going to be. And by some estimates, in the year 2050, it was going to be, what, half a trillion dollars a year. That was like the highest uh, estimate. And um, w- one of the related areas which both you know, uh, our unit as well as the health unit is actively pursuing is the cost of providing this long-term care. Uh, the long term care insurance markets are very thin, uh, as you saw in the video care uh, givers themselves are under great stress, so across the two units, we are doing a lot of work. but substantively, do you want to uh, add anything else to i mean
2: <laughs> sorry not really but um but it is actually I think a really important uh you know question, and so it 's something that a lot of us are really interested in um you know uh, yeah, so Krishna has touched on some of these things like, you know, the effects of, of you know, pulling people out of the labor market. But there's also kind of long-term effects on, on caregivers, not just in terms of their health, but their sort of re-employability. When you take somebody out of the labor market, that, you know, that creates a gap in their resume and it's harder to re-employ them, um, you know. And there could be some really interesting trends going forward, too, if you're thinking about sort of, you know, just sort of what's – happening with the traditional workforce, uh, uh, workplace, and like, you know, our ability to kind of do things like, you know, drive for Uber, or like have other things that maybe connect us to the labor force in different ways than it has in the past, you know, uh, that means that maybe somebody doesn't have to full-time withdraw from the labor force, you know, to be able to care for somebody. Um, But I think, yeah, there are a lot of really interesting questions, and a lot of us are, are working actively in that area, so...
5: I'm wondering, with um, the vast majority of of people under 35 are going to be the bulk of the U.S. workforce, and that's holding true across many countries. Um, I'm
2: really curious to see any trends that you're following or uh, highlights that you're seeing in your research. I mean, in the U.S., it's it's the bulk of workers are going to be older. Uh, So, you know, just the population in general is is aging and – you know, it's actually, it's it's a really kind of interesting thing to think about. So Jim touched on a little bit, like, you know, the sort of financial sustainability of, of social security programs and things like that. Like, do we have enough workers to support all these older people? Um, you know, but I uh, actually didn't get a chance to talk about this, but I'll, I'll talk about it now. You know, uh, we've been doing some really interesting work. You know that's that's uh, preliminary and and active, so we haven't uh, we haven't finalized our results yet. Trying to estimate just sort of the economic impacts of population aging. Um, you know, and part of that is just to get a baseline to understand like how much do we need to like where is a good place to intervene. Um, and so we're estimating that you know actually that there's going to be you know uh, potentially long term uh, cuts in growth due to population aging, and maybe a third of that is going to be due to reduced you know labor force participation. And and two thirds of that is actually productivity decreases, and so you know in thinking about you know what are the policies that we want to be, um, you know uh, thinking about like you know engaging older workers is something that like we've we've talked about you know quite a bit, um, but actually uh, you know our work kind of suggests that that focusing on on productivity of older workers is is a major area there, and then one other really intriguing finding that is very preliminary that we're finding is that you know actually having uh, more older people in the population, sort of more to, more older workers, uh, doesn't just decrease the productivity of the average worker or the older worker, but younger workers as well. So there seems to be some spillovers mm-hmm. there too. Yeah. So thinking about just sort of the demographic, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, population shares, aging shares, you know, and how that, that affects the workforce I think is really important. So I know I took your question on younger workers and turned it into older workers. No, but but, but uh, uh, I really think that's... That's the area that that we want to be thinking about for the U.S. But the
3: point about the negative effect on the younger workers' productivity is very interesting. And going back to youth unemployment, if you will, uh, in the U.S. and many other countries, it's like a stylized fact that youth unemployment is usually two and a half to three times higher than what it is for adults. And in particular, we have focused quite a bit on the global uh, youth unemployment problem. Uh, We are one of the founding partners with the World Bank, the ILO, in an initiative called Solutions for Youth Employment. You can find it on the web, s4ye.org. And, uh, you know, it's a much bigger problem in the Middle East, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and so on, but there are clear implications in the U.S. as well for youth unemployment.
5: I was wondering how much is the switchover from defined benefit to defined contribution really sweeping a problem under the rug? In other words, now you're turning uh planning for retirement over to individuals who are not as well trained on the other hand uh I'm not sure how well the professional managers do also <laughs> so uh, so I was wondering has there been any studies that, you know what the equivalent macroscopic effect of all that is
4: um, the uh, from the beginning, I think there's been concern about whether individuals have the knowledge to manage their portfolios and access to the tools to do so. Um, I think today's, in, today's workers who are on D.C. plans are increasingly financially aware, but there's still a great deal of financial ignorance. Uh, Rand has, in labor and population a center on behavioral finance and part of their part of the agenda concerns the extent to which individuals are informed and Krishna might want to elaborate a bit on that the other thing is that um, over time there have been financial protections put into place for DC plans as well as uh, DB plans the defined benefit plans led to the format because they were underfunded by the companies that had them as you probably, okay, Uh, that led to ERISA. Um, Defined contribution plans obviously shift the risk for asset management to the individual. And then the issue is whether the individual is capable of doing that. And that, that capability, I guess, can, it depends very much on the guidance received simply because it's now fairly understood that the returns on, fairly well understood, that the returns on funds uh, saving for retirement can be diminished if there is very active buying and selling as opposed to holding diversified portfolios. So I believe the usual guidance is simply to hold something like a a stock, let's call it a stock index for want of a better term, um, an index fund, and go, go with that. But that obviously does not remove all of the uh, financial risk. And, again, I, I'm beyond beyond that and beyond mentioning the behavioral finance program here as part of the research, um, I think it remains just an, an open area of concern.
3: So question. just if I can add just a couple of quick points. Uh, we have done some interesting experiments on this American Life panel, which is like 6,000 captive Americans who have been with us for a dozen years, we have done over 500 surveys on them. We can also do virtual experiments. We can, you know, teach different groups, different ways of acquiring financial knowledge, and then test what effect that has. So that's one thing we have done. And the other thing is over a decade's uh, worth of work has led the Department of Labor to pass the so-called fiduciary uh, rule uh, in in the recent years, which is to cover all... Uh, people, investment brokers and retirement advisors, under the fiduciary rule, so that the individual is not taken advantage of. so the the combination of literacy plus the right amount of regulation is absolutely needed, so that's a great uh, you know question that you asked on how do we match defined contribution to to financial literacy and regulation?
4: Is a liberal arts education relevant to uh, obtaining a job? Put another way, is it worth the investment? Uh, okay. Oh. <laughs> uh, yes. So, uh,
5: the answer is it depends. But uh, a, a college, and he's not even an economist. <laughs> yeah, a, a college education uh, in the econ- in in today's economy, if you don't have a college education, you're much less likely to to. Sort of have a good income. Uh, on the other hand, it's no longer a guarantee of a good income anymore. So it used to be that if you had a college, in, uh, if you had a college education, then uh, you were almost certainly going to be in the top 20 percent of of earners. Uh, now that's no longer true, because you know so many people, uh, you know the majority of of uh, people, you know under 30. Uh, are either in school or, or uh, have a college education or have some college. And so an education is no longer a guarantee of a good job. Now, some of that depends on what skills are you acquiring. And so is a liberal arts education teaching you to learn and so that you can adapt to the economy? Uh, and so in the when the answer to that question is yes, then those people are likely to you know, wind up doing well. Um, on the other hand, if, if it's saddling people with debt and, uh, not giving them sort of access to, to employment, then that's, that's a problem. And so the debt is a problem, uh, but it is a sort of a requisite to a good job. So that's not a, you know, I, I don't have a clean answer for that, but it's, that wouldn't okay, work so, so I'm, okay, I'll demur yes, a but, little bit,
4: and yeah. when I've looked at the unemployment rates of individuals who have STEM and non-STEM educations. They're the same. The average earnings in STEM jobs are higher than non-STEM jobs. The thing about a liberal arts education is, though, although it's a very well posed question, it's a question that invites discussion as opposed to a, a simple answer, as I'm sure you realize. The first question is, what is a liberal arts education? Second is, what's the quality of the education? It's a very wide domain, and actually a liberal arts education that is well-suited to one person might not be so well-suited to another. So there's a question of the match to the major. The third thing is the extent to which the individual is actually willing to put in the effort to take advantage of the education. So there's a very strong individual heterogeneity component to what they do with it. Another thing, uh, what cranked me up here was the comment about (laughs) the... So your comment, not his, but your comment about uh, English majors and (laughs) and engineers. It turns out we have in this country about four times as many people with science and engineering baccalaureates who work four times as many as those who work in a science and engineering job. That's one of the reasons fueling the debate about whether H-1B should be used. And on the, so this is a, you know, one hand, other hand. On the one hand, the fact that only one-fourth of those with baccalaureates in S&E work in a science and engineering occupation is a matter of personal choice and, and job availability, obviously. But there's individual volition involved with what's going on. I think that the answer is that a liberal arts education, like learning Latin, can offer opportunities to learn habits of rigorous thinking and logic and then the extent to which the individual is flexible and willing to learn on a continuing basis throughout adulthood will make a difference to whether there's a payoff from any degree.
3: Plus, soft skills are becoming really important in the economy. Yeah. And I would like to think that liberal arts majors would have a kind of a comparative advantage in that, perhaps.
0: Um, I know there's an old quote that's first generation makes it, second generation maintains it, and third generation blows it.
3: <laughs> and,
0: uh, Carter, you were talking about how the the upper couple percent, the expansion of wealth that they control is expanding, the middle class is shrinking. Uh, I personally have a hard time understanding the role of the generation-skipping trusts and the point that this serves. Um, I, I don't know if you can just take that and expand upon that sum of what are the positives and what are the negatives and, and how that fits.
5: Well, I, I mean, I guess it depends on your perspective. The The positives, if you're the person inheriting the trust. Or <laughs> uh, the, the, there is, uh, I mean, the, the United States has, if you compare us to the rest of the developed world, um, we're, our, our, our uh, intergenerational income elasticity. So that's just the likelihood. If, if you tell me your parents' income in the United States, uh, I have a pretty good, Get, I can pretty well tell you how much your money you'll be making. Uh, that's much less true if you look in the Netherlands or somewhere like that, where if you, you know the the correlation is about twenty percent, here the correlation is more like you know forty or fifty percent. Um, so there's so that that has to do with with income inequality. Now I think you were specifically asking about wealth inequality, and, and this is where the... this isn't an area where we've done a ton of research. Versions. at least I haven't done a ton of research, but uh, the the famous Thomas Piketty um, wrote the book Capital and and really got into that issue. Uh, and most of his beliefs about sort of accumulating capital and sort of an ossified society were more theoretical uh, than, than – uh, he certainly had a lot of data that, that it was based on. But uh, a lot of that was essentially sort of logic arguments that, you know, it, as – Uh, income becomes concentrated, and uh, mobility declines, you're going to have sort of this upper crust that just keeps getting wealthier and wealthier. And that's sort of the, at least the theoretical danger there. This is a a case where we don't have, we have a lot of heat, but not a lot of light. Uh, So there's a lot of people fighting about this and arguing about it, but uh, there's not a ton of data. It's really hard to study. And so uh, there are Active efforts to study this, and, and as I mentioned, the the mobile um, analysis, the mobile project that that uh, Krishna is leading and that, that I'm working on uh, with other colleagues here, uh, we're hoping to study that and hoping to understand that better. But as unfortunately, we're not sort of able to provide a ton of great answers on these questions because it is an active area of research, and uh, it's hard to to get. It's, it's hard research to do. So, um, I don't know if anybody else wants to say anything.
0: I think that concludes our, our panel. Um, there might be some opportunities to ask some questions afterwards. Um, but uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org slash events.